0: latest edition of Upper Michigan's Happy Hour here on ESPN-UP. It's a sports pen starting another week with you. Tanner Hoops here and delighted that you're along as always. going to be a fun show today, always is, but this time uh, we mean it with a little bit more emphasis than normal. We've got a couple of guests who are going to join us here on our makeshift phone line. Matt Mackerzak, Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach. He just wrapped up his first full recruiting class as the head basketball coach at northern he'll be on with us in about fifteen minutes and he'll break that down for us plus a very familiar voice to ESPN-UP listeners and those of us here in upper michigan he's uh... become pretty darn national and he's uh... become familiar to some national listeners and a national audience as well he just so happens to be involved with racing, and uh, i'm sure that gives it away for a lot of people but that is uh... Gonna happen here in about 30 minutes. That's Ryan Marine. He uh, was the former sports director here at ESPN UP, and he's gone national. He's gone international. He is a racing analyst, and NASCAR just so happened to return yesterday with a ton of storylines, and all eyes on that sport, except maybe golf and that Fowler Johnson Wolf, whatever they had going on. Uh, But nonetheless, NASCAR may have seen one of its biggest Sundays. In the sports history, maybe it, at least in recent memory, and Ryan is going to join us here in about 30 minutes and break that down. Plus, which NFL team has the toughest road to the Super Bowl? Maybe even which division. I've got some thoughts on that and uh, some numbers to break down with you. All that and more coming up over the course of the next hour. But where I want to start today is talking baseball because baseball is doing something that they normally don't do. They are taking the lead on something. They are the trendsetter league. Now, granted, Major League Baseball is arguably the only sport where a player or coach has not tested positive for COVID-19. The NBA was hit hard by it, so obviously they're a little more cautious with their plan to return to play. NHL, you know, they had that one guy with the Senators, otherwise it hasn't been too bad for them. But they're not generally the the league that takes the lead. That goes right at it and attacks it. And the NFL, of course, Sean Payton tested positive. They are still months away from the start of their season. So baseball is in a position they never really have been before. Because, again, no player or manager that we know of, at least at the major league level, has tested positive for COVID-19. And their season should have started a couple of months ago. So they are now in a position that they are showing they are capable of handling. And you know what? I've given Rob Manfred grief. Over the course of his tenure as Major League Baseball's manager, I did so when he came out with that proposal, the the 17 playoff where you get a pick, you have a live show, who you want to play in the first round. I mean, that's, that's terrible. It's still terrible. But you know what? Rob Manfred has done a wonderful job as a commissioner through all this. I, I tell you what, Rob Manfred has a clear, albeit ambitious, path to get the 2020 baseball season going so we know what some of the details are an eighty two game regular season that's almost half the year cut out you would have potentially seven playoff teams and everyone would play only geographical opponents well we're learning more about the proposal for major league baseball and this was released ESPN over the weekend if there is a major league baseball season it's going to go by the following guidelines, and this is courtesy of Jeff Pass and one of our baseball insiders here at ESPN. Major League Baseball has acquired 10,000 coronavirus tests, and they will, uh, they, I'm, I should rephrase that. Major League Baseball has acquired enough tests where they can administer 10,000 coronavirus tests a week on their players and personnel. I don't know how Major League Baseball was able to obtain enough tests where they can test 10,000 people a week. I'd You know, and I know a lot of people don't agree with that. They don't like that, and they think that should be going elsewhere, not to athletes, to those more at risk. I get that. I hear that. I'm not here to discuss that. I'm just reporting that, that that is among what baseball is going to have to, er, or is putting in their proposal to proceed with the season. I do like this, though, and this is really good on Major League Baseball. Uh, Major League Baseball is going to offer free coronavirus tests to all healthcare workers and first responders in cities with a Major League Baseball team. So, yeah, obviously, they're the, they're the real heroes in all this. They are our doctors, our nurses, our researchers, our first responders. They are those on the front lines. And, you know, I criticized Blake Snell and a few other players last week that don't want to play for their measly millions of dollars this year. I did criticize them for that. This is a good thing that baseball is doing. I'm really happy to see, you know, I, I have an aunt who's a nurse in the Twin Cities, and now, you know, because the twins are there, they have a baseball team up there, she would be able to be eligible for this. Free coronavirus tests for healthcare care workers in any city with a Major League Baseball team, so I really am happy to see that from Major League Baseball. Players themselves are not allowed to use taxis, Lyft, Ubers, or any other means of public transportation and That's just safety, you know, safety precautions that you don't know who else has been in that Uber, whose germs are there, whose are present, so only your own transportation. Social distancing being practiced in the dugout, there will be a color-coded format for where players, coaches, and personnel are allowed to be within the dugout. There's gonna be a color-coded format. That says managers and coaches get this designated area. Players can be in this designated area, and they all need to be six feet apart from each other. Thus, players will not stand shoulder to shoulder for the national anthem. Players are going to have to be spread out at least six feet apart when the national anthem is played, and this is discouraged—not not a rule, but players are discouraged from using the locker room facilities to shower after the game. They are encouraged to shower at home. Kind of throw back to Little League in a way. But I tell you what, it, a lot of this, while it's restrictive, it's it's weird, it, and it's ambitious, you know, there's a lot that's in this that has to be done logistically, it, it kind of gives you some hope. It gives you hope that it, there is a league with a plan in place to do this, that they have a clear idea, they have a clear identity of what they are planning to do. And it gives you hope that it's actually going to come through what else gives you hope and this is not set in stone but the way that I interpreted this proposal I thought it sounds like there is a real possibility that fans will be allowed to attend Major League Baseball games now obviously you're not gonna sell out no game is gonna sell out this year and no stadium would be more than a a third full so Everyone can practice social distancing while they're in the stands. You can be six feet apart from each other, but it does sound like there is a chance. And, you know, and the way I interpreted it, that there's optimism that fans will be able to go, or at least some fans in a limited capacity will be able to attend Major League Baseball games this year. Now, there's a lot that depends on that, a lot of variables, and certainly the area that the, uh, that the uh, uh, stadium is located and uh, how they're being affected by COVID-19 but it sounds as if there's a real chance that baseball could play in, at least, uh, in front of at least some fans this year. Now, will that mean that ticket prices are going to soar? you Are going to have to pay four figures for a nosebleed seat in a game that's not the World Series? You're going to have to do that in, I don't know, mid-July. I, I don't know. I don't think that's honestly where we're at because baseball, and again, I give Rob Manfred, his commissioner, a lot of credit. Him and his top executives early on in this took a 35% pay cut. And Major League Baseball, at this point, has had no furloughs and no pay cuts even on the rest of the main staff. This is the top tier. Rob Manfred and the guys at the very top in the penthouse of Major League Baseball, they all took 35% pay cuts. So baseball has not furloughed anybody from their main offices. They haven't even cut those guys' pay. Baseball has been really on top of this financially, and they've been on top of this in almost every aspect. Now, is it plausible that we'll have baseball again this year and it's all going to go smoothly and according to plan? I I don't know. This is such uncharted territory, but it gives you optimism as someone involved in sports. It gives you optimism as a fan that we have a clear path going forward. It's ambitious, yes. There's a lot of moving pieces, but uh, there's a plan in place. Now, here's some other things that I I know we're going to have to figure out. We're going to have to talk about because you are practicing social distancing at every stage possible. But a catcher, an umpire, and the guy in the batter's box can't be six feet apart from each other. If there's a play at the plate, then what do you do? If you need to tag a guy out, you know, are we going to get rid of rundowns? Are we going to say that rundowns are illegal now because you might come within six feet of somebody? I mean, it, it sounds silly, but these are real questions that baseball needs to and is asking themselves right now. Yasiel Puig, what's he going to do if he can't start a benches-clearing brawl? What are we going to do when someone hits a walk-off home run? Do we golf clap from the dugout? I'm not saying that is a joke. I mean, that really is something that baseball's going to have to combat is the element of human emotion. Because eh, if you get a bunch of guys in the heat of the moment excited and running out to bob a guy at home plate, it, uh, it, it really is something with benches clearing brawls as well a lot of that is emotion and how can you keep these guys tempers under control because when you start a benches clearing brawl like a guy like Yasiel Puig, Amir Garrett guys like that they know they're going to get fined they they know that they're going to take a heavy pay cut and they know they shouldn't do it but in the heat of the moment they do it so while it does sound silly and I admit it it, it is kind of silly you know what's Yasiel Puig going to do without a benches clearing brawl or if he can't start one It is a real thing, because if a guy knows he's going to lose thousands of dollars if he does it, what's going to make the difference? He might get the virus if he does it. I mean, it's a guarantee. Uh, Fine, maybe suspension if he starts a fight. He might get the virus. That's something that baseball does have to think about, as silly as it is. What about infield shifts? What if you decide to put all four infielders on one side of the diamond, but they're not six feet apart? That is, again, I don't say this tongue-in-cheek. I mean, these are real questions that baseball has to answer. There's a lot of logistics going forward. Now, here's another thing in regards to the fan interaction, if we potentially do have fans in the stands. There is a chemical company based out of Syracuse. It's called Eagle Hawk, and they have been producing a mix of household cleaners designed to kill COVID nineteen. And they've been doing so on a really large scale. As, you know, that's not uncommon right now. I'm sure Lysol and Clorox workers, they're absolutely uh putting in big hours and doing a lot of work. But this company is doing it for the purpose of loading the special cleaner in drones. And the drones would drop essentially a a bomb of household cleaners, uh, that's not the right way to put it, but they're going to dust stadiums with household cleaners. They, w- they will essentially spray down household cleaners from drones on stadium seats. They've already tried this at two different arenas in Buffalo, at Siler Field where the baseball team, the minor league team, the Buffalo Bison play, and at Key Bank Arena where the Buffalo Sabres play. They have developed this, and it's been tested. This is something Major League Baseball is looking into doing. After every game, you get this drone to drop cleaner onto the stadium seats. Now, there are a few, obviously, environmental problems with that, or at least not necessarily problems, but potential problems. Because, obviously, those things are not something that are safe to ingest for humans. I mean, if a human comes in contact with that, it could be potentially toxic. So you've got to wash those stadiums after every use. And that's got to happen, obviously, on a daily basis from game to game. And then what if some of that runoff got onto the field? Because, as we know, stadiums slope downward with their seatings, their grandstands, their bleachers, they slope downward. What if, even if it's washed off, what if it creates enough enough runoff and it goes down onto the field and then it's still lingering there and causing potential health problems for the athletes, for the guys on field and that's something that you know we can run all these tests what have you but we won't know is that a real risk is that plausible because at least we won't know until it actually happens it's not something that you can test you can only prepare for it and we don't know Necessarily what we're preparing for. That's why this is such an ambitious plan. It's not as simple as just quarantining some players in a certain city, like Major League Soccer is trying to do. This is an ambitious plan, but it is still a realistic plan. There's a lot that needs to happen for baseball to make this come true, but certainly it's not out of the realm of possibility. And that, to me, is what encourages me that we may have a return to pro sports, particularly baseball, in this country sooner rather than later. Let's take our first time out. When we come back, Matt Mackerzak, Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach, will join me. We'll recap his recruiting class next on ESPN-UP.
1: Household Appliance is ready to take care of you and your appliance needs. May is Maytag month and there are huge incentives right now on quality built in the USA Maytag appliances. Stay home, stay safe has allowed many people to realize that their kitchen appliances need to be replaced or that their washers and dryers just aren't doing the trip. Well, Household Appliance and Market has the quality and the savings of Maytag during May is Maytag month. Maytag quality lasts, but these incentives won't last for very long. Household appliance where service after the sale is a tradition. Sale ends June 3rd. Now back to the sports pen. Here's Tanner Hoop.
0: Men's Basketball Head Coach Matt Mackerzak because he just completed his first full recruiting class as the Northern Basketball Head Coach. And Coach, I know that you've said it many times, it was one of the more memorable things from, at least for me, from your introductory press conference almost a year ago where you said a lot of coaches wait until they can get their guys in, but the guys, there are already your guys. But, you know, and I, I... believe that I know that's true but it's got to feel pretty good a sense of accomplishment to have your own full class you know you put this group together for the first time and uh, now you get a welcome into your squad.
2: Yeah we're really excited about it I think uh, you know that these guys this year were were 100% my guys and um, you know you care about them and love them and all that kind of stuff but it is nice being able to kind of fit the the personnel more to exactly your style and how you coach and I think last year we we adjusted some of the stuff we wanted to do in order to fit our group. And um, I think this group's going to be able to play maybe a little bit more kind of how I I, want to play and how I picture basketball being played. Well, I want to go
0: through the guys individually, Matt, but kind of as an overview, I see a lot of transfer students on here, guys who have experience at the college level. Is that something that you do tend to scout for and attract or is it just kind of, you know, they were the best players at the time?
2: Well, I think uh, going into this, I thought we were going to recruit almost all high school kids um, and not be too transfer heavy, and I think a few things happened, one of which was um, th- there were some really, really talented players available, um, partly due to, I think, some of the circumstances of this particular season. Um, the other thing is, I think basketball's, uh, as are all college sports, but maybe particular men's basketball is transitioning to this culture of transferring and um, the transfer portal has been more prevalent than it's ever been before. And um, it's kind of one of those things is, do you want to be the the old guy on the porch saying, get off my lawn, or do you want to adjust to kind of what the new style of, of, of the game's going to. And um, so this year, I, I think we, we did maybe a little bit more of it than even we will in the future, but, we also were a little bit fortunate where I think all four of the transfers we brought in um, are guys that we had previous relationships with. And um, sometimes when you're new, you still have a lot of these other connections, either with you know coaching junior college or we brought the one kid in from Bemidji where I was an assistant. So um, it was kind of a, co- a combination of a whole bunch of things, but um, we're excited about the group. And I, to be honest, the other part of this is, our kids this year I think showed how close they were to being able to compete for a championship and you know when you beat the three best teams in the league on the road I think you see uh, you see in in the in the near future how close we could be to winning a championship and that might make you a little bit more aggressive in pursuing some some transfer guys who come in with a little more experience.
0: Well, you mentioned one of the transfers you coached during your time at Bemidji. Max Bjorklund is coming over. Tell me about him. What Northern fans can expect from him?
2: Yeah, we're really excited about him. He he averaged 15 points a game the last 20 games at Bemidji this year. Um, he early on wasn't in the starting lineup, and once he kind of got in that lineup, uh, day in and day out, he was arguably one of their best players. The thing we really like about Max is. Uh, he guarded the other team's best player he shot the ball well from three and then he also gets to the foul line and and basically let him in free throw shot as well so he's one of those kind of three tool guys where he's not just a shooter he's not just a driver he's not just a defender so he can just do a lot of things and the the kind of exciting part for him is he did all that as a sophomore and now he's got kind of two years where he's gonna really be able to have a, a new start but in a lot of ways build on the successes he's already had. So, And, and I was, did a lot of the recruiting with him when he came out of high school to Bemidji. So in this instance, not being able to sit down and have those face-to-face discussions, that really wasn't near the big deal for either of our sides. That was When he had decided to transfer, that was kind of the first call we had was, hey, this is one of those interesting situations where you don't want to go play for a coach that you don't know. And I don't really want to bring in a player, I don't know. So maybe this works out well for both of us. And um, we're really excited to have him.
0: Well, you have Trey Harvey, a 6'2 guard from downstate Michigan. And I look at his accolades, and I'm excited to see him play. I'm sure a lot of Northern fans are going to be excited to see him play. But he's a JUCO guy that you bring in from Schoolcraft. Tell me about him.
2: Yeah, he's the the one guy um, of the four that hadn't played D2 before. Um, he was a uh, a junior college transfer that – Had the grades, that wasn't it. He just wanted to go to junior college and recruited at a little bit higher level. And um, Schoolcraft is probably the best junior college program in Michigan and one of the better ones in the whole Midwest. I I got to know their coach well last year when I was at the level. and um, Trey was one of those guys that he maybe came in and he didn't have quite the accolades that maybe some of their other players did and then last season he was their second leading scorer and this season was their leading scorer and he just is really really productive um gets a lot of stuff done shoots threes really really well which is something we obviously were looking for in this class and he's that point guard that I feel like can play the point guard spot while also getting other guys involved which is always you know the hard part is balancing those two things and I think he does a great job of
0: I look at a guy like uh, Connor Casper Bauer, a six-four corn-fed Iowan, which I'm really happy to see uh, another yeah. one come up here. Uh, but he played for the Division II National Champions out at Kirkwood Community College a year ago. Uh, tell me about him and what he'll bring to the table.
2: We, uh, I remember, I remember not only playing against him but I remember one specific play. We, we, when I was last year at Brian Stratton, we played Kirkwood, who went on to win the national championship, and we were down two with about four minutes to go, and um, they kicked it to him, and it was one of those when he caught it and he shot it. There was zero doubt in my mind the ball was going in. And it wasn't even a debate. Um, and as a coach coaching against that, it makes you sick when, when a guy's that good a shooter. And, um, Last year, I, I'd called a couple of my friends at low division one schools, and I said, "Hey, you need to get on this Castro Bauer kid. He's a prototypical low division one shooting guard." And he decided to go back for his sophomore year this year in order to try to get some of those low division one offers. And uh, had a bunch of D2 stuff, and ended up getting hurt over the course of the summer and had to medically redshirt this year. So he was in kind of one of those tough spots where he wasn't playing so he wasn't going to garner the normal recruiting interest and we'd had a relationship I was really good friends with his coach and it was one of those situations where it just kind of worked out and um, we're really excited with Marcus leaving we needed to bring in someone else that could kind of be that sniper and uh, we feel like Connor is a little bit bigger but brings a lot of the same things to the table that Marcus did.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was going to be my follow-up question. Is this kind of the Marcus Matelski style of player? I mean, he's six foot four, but over eighty made threes, shooting forty-two percent. I mean, that's a that's quite a weapon. Yeah, for
2: sure. I think he he's one of those. He's really similar to Marcus, where when he gets a shot, you feel like it's going in every time. And um, I, I think that was – all year I was kind of struggling going, oh, we're going to miss Marcus, we're going to miss Marcus. We run all these plays to get him shots. We don't have – there aren't many guys like that. Where are we going to find a guy like that? And then um, when Connor decided to commit, I, I Marcus this was during our season, and I pulled up the highlights and made Marcus watch him. And I'm like, hey, we found, we found the next version of you. If I won't <laughs> – he's going to be different, but – look at it and Marcus kind of laughed and then we actually saw a picture and they even kind of look alike. So yeah, I, I think Connor can do some things different than Marcus um, with his height and some of the other things, but they definitely fit a similar profile.
0: Well, you bring in a new post player as well, Connor McCants, six foot eight, 260 pounds, but from all accounts, he moves really well, very athletic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Connor's an interesting one. Cause he's, he's a massive, human being. Most big guys kinda look like stretched out versions of human beings. Um they look like you took a normal guy and you kinda pulled them taller. Connor's very, very proportional. Um so he, he's two sixty but he, he has no baby fat even on him. He's just really strong. He's got big hands, big legs. Um but yeah, he's got those those kind of dancer feet. And uh I think defensively he's as good a high school kid um defensively as I've seen so we're excited we think he can play right away if he needs to just because his body's ready which isn't normally the case with with freshman post players um but I I, it's kind of great because he doesn't shoot and all we you know talk about is shooting 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 and me more than anyone I want to lead the country in threes next year but it's kind of nice to have one guy that is going to screen for those guys is going to rebound and is going to score inside um which almost frees up more space on the perimeter
0: well, you also got another six foot eight player in Sam Schultz, and he's a guy that can play inside, but he can stretch the floor by all
2: accounts as well. Yeah, Sam's a, a kind of prototype four-man in our league. He's an inside-outside threat. He scores well in the post. Uh, he scores well in isolations. He was the uh, one recruiting service, had him the highest-ranked kid in Illinois to sign with the Division two school. Another one had him the second-highest kid. So of the 50, 60 kids in Illinois who signed D2 this year, um, a couple people thought he might have been the best one, and we hope so. I, I, I think he could be. Um, he's, he ended up getting uh, hurt last summer, so he missed the July uh, evaluation period. Otherwise, he probably would have ended up with a couple Division One offers. He even had a couple Division One offers this year that um, were further away, and he wanted to stay a little bit closer. And um, we feel really lucky to have gotten him and, and think he's going to has a chance to be one of those special guys uh, as his career progresses.
0: Coach, how about Carson Smith, your 6'1 junior guard? He comes from an area in Wisconsin that produces some really talented athletes at the collegiate level.
2: Yeah, I think he's got a little in common with Noah, who we brought in last year, where he uh, he played at such a high level. His, his high school team last year, had their starting five all will be college basketball players. Um, he played with Patrick Baldwin, who... Um, a lot of people have as the number one player in the country who's a year younger than him. And he was the second leading scorer on that team, um, knocked down a bunch of threes, just really, really tough and really, really smart where he, he's not the typical high school kid in that he's played against such good competition and with such good players. He's going to have a little bit more experience to have himself ready to play at the college level right away.
0: Well, Coach, I not only want to – hear about what Latrell West will bring to the table, but I also want to hear how you managed to get a native New Jersey kid who played division, uh, uh, division two Juco in South Carolina. Uh, Both that story and what he'll bring to the
2: table. Yeah, that's uh, in a, in some ways they were kind of easy stories in that they were guys we saw in AU or guys that we were friends with their coaches or guys I'd coach. So um, Latrell was, is kind of the outlier to that. He um, played, He's, he originally committed to go to a junior college in Iowa, and the assistant at that junior college ended up taking my job at Brian Stratton. So that was kind of the initial end. And then his freshman year, uh, he played at Division three Junior College. His high school coach got a job, and he wanted to stay playing for his high school coach out in New Jersey. And He actually won the National Player of the Year that year, averaged like 27 points, something crazy like that. And then he decided after his freshman year, to go to Division Two, he was their leading scorer, um, you know, second in assists, third in rebounding, had a great sophomore season. And for whatever reason, he just didn't fit into that school. And so I kind of heard about him at first. I wasn't positive about a kid from New Jersey. And then I started doing some research on him. And obviously the play was really good. He's a three eight GPA kid. Um, and then just getting to talk to him and, and talking to all the coaches that had been around him. He was one of those guys that was just a great student athlete on top of the player was obvious for us right away. And once we knew that, he was someone we knew we really, really wanted, uh, similar to Max. He's, He's already proven he can do it at a really high level. So I think that gives those guys such an advantage over the normal kid coming into a new program.
0: Coach, uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but uh, which of these guys has the best shot maybe or some of these guys that could
2: contribute immediately for you next year? Yeah, I, I kind of think it's, it's interesting because, in a way, obviously the four transfers, you don't bring them in if you don't see them having a big impact right away. And um, and even the three high school kids are, are really ready in their own ways, either their body or the levels they've came from. Um, yeah, I think Max and Latrell – maybe are the safest in the sense of they've already done it at the D2 level. So it's it's hard to imagine them not being, you know, really, really good players because they've already done it. But I, I'm really excited about the whole group. I think they're going to be a, a very ready-to-go group, even the high school kids. So uh, there's going to be a lot of competition next year. I, I think that's one of the exciting parts, but also what we're trying to figure out is we think that this year we didn't have a, a ton of depth at times where next year we return a really good nucleus and we add a a lot of guys that are ready to play and we're hoping to be really deep and and use that to help us. Matt
0: Mackerzak is the Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach, kind enough to lend us his time and break down his new recruiting class. Appreciate it as always, Matt. Looking forward to seeing this group on the floor. All the best. Stay safe and be well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's take a timeout when we come back. NASCAR made its return this weekend. A familiar voice breaks it down with us next on ESPN-UP.
1: Lawns and gardens grow better on topsoil than on rocks. Ishpeming Concrete is now open for you to get your planting season started. Get a half yard of topsoil gently loaded into your pickup truck for just 18 bucks. That's a whole lot less than the 25 bags you'd need from the home store. Sweeten up your plantings and fix your lawn from the ravages of winter. Topsoil, the softer side of Ishpeming Concrete. 400 Stone Street behind Robbins Flooring, open weekdays 8 till 4.30, locally owned with a total Commitment to quality. There's no contact paying with a credit card, and you don't need to leave your vehicle. Now open Saturdays, 7 to noon. Here's Tom from Donkers in the Delft.
2: Yeah, my buddy Fred Donkers, 1918, he had to live through the pandemic, is right. He uh, started in 1896. So, 1918, he was booming, and the, the uh, Delft actually just reopened at that time. And 1918, right after the war, they, they redid the Delft, and I'm sure the uh, theater soon after that pandemic was packed the gills and i hope we have the same situation happen and, and we'll be safe with whatever we do no matter what it's going to be uh, it'll be a fun time to see all our friends and family and have them come in and, and eat some of our tremendous
1: food now back to the sports pen here's tanner hoot
0: Brother of Tua Tagovailoa is transferring to Maryland. Tagovailoa appeared in five games for the Crimson Tide his freshman season. Arizona Cardinals defensive lineman Corey Peters has created a virtual book club to provide an educational outlet for Arizona high school students. All high school students in the state are eligible to register. And finally, Johnny Depp was born in Kentucky. That is your sports center update. Glad that you're along as always, and we're joined now by a special guest who's very familiar to our listeners and. He's gone national to international. It is Ryan Marine, former sports director at ESPN-UP, and he used to be the host of the Sports Pen. He's kind enough to lend us his time and come back down here to the Little Leagues with us. What's up, Ryan?
3: Hey, Tanner. Great to talk with you.
0: Hey, always good talking to you, too, my man. Uh, first of all, before we talk about the return of NASCAR yesterday, does it surprise you, Johnny Depp's from Kentucky?
3: It does and it, it makes me dislike him a little bit. Uh, <laughs> long time listeners of the show know that uh, the, the good Hoosier in me despises just about anything Kentucky related, so um, that's uh, that's a real bummer. I
0: tell you what, um, NASCAR came back yesterday, and you're as foremost of a racing expert as I've ever met anyone uh, <laughs> anyone who's been involved in it for a long time, and uh, I tell you what, NASCAR was back yesterday. How excited were you as a racing fanatic? I mean, that, that's, that had to be like your Super Bowl yesterday.
3: Yeah, to be honest, it, it is good. And it does come with some conflicted feelings. Uh, I Obviously, I come into this with no knowledge, no scientific expertise. But I, I do think some questions that have been raised about whether or not this was The the smartest decision are are valid at least to to discuss. Um, My hope is that NASCAR did everything in their power to make sure that their return was as safe as possible, and I do believe that they did that. There were several factors that were in their favor that that made this – feasible for them maybe more so than other sports even more so than other motorsports. but at the end of the day I really want this to be the right decision I want us to be looking back on this in in several months time and say yep you know what they were ahead of the curve they had a plan they executed and uh, early returns say that they did that's that's encouraging at least and uh, at the end of the day like I said it was just great to, to sit down on the couch and have racing on tv again for the first time and in several weeks, uh, I guess months at this point, it's been quite a while, so it was something a bit cathartic. It was weird for sure, Kevin Harvick's post-race victory interview where he gets out of the car and was expecting some kind of uh, celebration from the crowd. and got nothing obviously Uh, that that was kind of funny in a way but uh, you know it's the world we live in right now and and you know they're doing their best to to make the most of a a bad situation
0: it was just a weird atmosphere with no stand uh, no fans in the stands although you know we're thankful that racing was back and harvick you know he gets out of the out of the car with his mask on, I think that's going to become the new norm for uh, for NASCAR going forward. But like you said, we, we hope this is the best plan in place. I think that NASCAR did their due diligence, albeit they're in a situation, Ryan, or they were, and maybe still are, depending on how things go, that they would be on the brink of financial collapse if they don't get uh, get going again.
3: Yeah, that's that's true. I think less so for the bigger teams, but certainly the smaller teams. They aren't making money. They, they make their money from sponsors primarily, but also there's purse money to be earned just by making the field. And obviously none of that's coming in if they're not racing. So uh, some of the bigger teams are in a better position to weather the storm, but the smaller ones are not. And, the, you know, motorsports is different than your traditional stick and ball sport from the standpoint that it is totally sponsorship dependent. The team is not going to make money on its own unless it has corporate backing and those corporate sponsors right now a are in a difficult time financially themselves and b aren't really interested in paying if what they're paying to to sponsor isn't actually out on track so there was definitely a sense of urgency from the team side of things and from the series side as well to find a way to return to the track just to to make sure the teams remain solvent and the sport remains solvent that is unique to motorsports. I don't think you see that with an NBA franchise, for instance. They have kind of an independent revenue source with with wealthy owners, and you know, there's not a huge expenditure just to to keep the lights on for an NBA team like there is for a stock car team. So, uh, from that standpoint, it's definitely what the teams in the series needed, and and I think a lot of motorsports. Here in the U.S., but also around the world, are watching very, very interestedly in, in how this transpires and trying to come up with plans themselves to get back going because uh, that's not a unique condition for NASCAR. The whole motorsports industry needs to find a way to get back up and running in a safe manner as soon as possible. All
0: well, right, plenty of storylines out of yesterday's race. Ryan Newman was part of that horrific crash at the uh, Daytona 500 in the last lap. Suffered that. Head injury, a fiery crash, and somehow walked away from me He called himself a walking miracle, but he really was one. Got back into the car this weekend, and I think he finished 15th, a very respectable finish. But, man, what a story for Ryan Newman, getting right back into the car.
3: Yeah, it really was, and it was great to see him back on track. I think he, he did, did do a test at Darlington, interestingly enough, before all the lockdown came back in to try and uh, make sure he was fit and ready to go. So he actually probably had a leg up on some of his competitors because he, he was on track at Darlington more recently than anybody. But uh, nevertheless, you make a good point. It was it was great to see him back behind the wheel. I think we all feared the worst when we saw that crash at Daytona. Uh, it sounds like the way that the car was hit, it was sliding and and was hit basically in the roof area, and uh, the roll cage was pushed down into his helmet. And while Ryan declined to give... The exact diagnosis of of the injury that he suffered he did say that his helmet was was damaged it was pushed in and and that really could have been a scary situation it sounds like it could have been a lot worse fortunately it was not i i know he had a couple of days to recoup in the hospital and miraculously walked out shortly thereafter and now we see him back behind the wheel which is an amazing thing i remember the night of the 500 thinking there was uh, a very good chance we would not get to see Ryan back behind the wheel ever again so i was really thrilled to see that uh, that it all came full circle and he's back doing what he's so good at doing.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that he was on track at Darlington, and that's something that a lot of the other drivers, really none of the other drivers, had the opportunity to do with no qualifying, no practice yeah. reps. What goes into that? I mean, did it was it noticeable to you as somebody who studies this sport probably more than anybody, and uh, was it noticeable to you maybe a few drivers kind of sluggish out of the get-go?
3: Yeah, I think you, you saw them being a bit conservative, tiptoeing around. Uh, some weren't so lucky. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. <laughs> admitted afterwards that he had a, a crash on the opening lap, and he said he was quite embarrassed by it. But to, to some extent, that's to be expected. And and it's not completely unprecedented to do this. I remember actually a race that I was covering for, uh, for radio back at the Brickyard 400 a couple years ago in Indianapolis where uh, they had rain for practice and qualifying first laps turned on the track came in the race for several drivers in one of the lower level series that was racing that weekend it was their first time on the track at indianapolis in any car ever and it came in in race conditions so you know these guys are good the teams in particular are good they've got years and years of data that they can go back to 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 try and give the guys as good of a setup as possible but uh, what i do think we saw was some surprising names that, that ended up in the top there. Uh, John Hunter Nemechek finishing in the top ten was a big surprise. A rookie making his first cup laps at Darlington. And for a very small team, I'm, uh, that was a big surprise. Tyler Reddick, a rookie, same thing, although for a bigger team with Richard Childress racing, but still a top ten finish for him. And I do wonder if, if maybe their teams hit something and that allowed them to have a bit of an advantage uh, that they won't have when they return to Darlington uh, later on in the week.
0: Ryan did anybody have a worse day yesterday than Jimmy Johnson? He was running so well, and then <laughs> we all know what happened,
3: yeah, probably not um and and it's uh, it's a shame this is supposed to be Jimmy's final full-time season in the Cup Series. We'll, we'll see if that ends up still being the case. I think he's kind of reopened that discussion to some degree because of how strange this year has turned out to be. But, uh, yeah, it was not the, the day he was looking for. He, he was leading, was about to win the, the first stage of the race and, and had a crash there dealing with some traffic and uh, ended his day early. But you know, I, I wouldn't worry too much about Jimmy. He'll bounce back.
0: Ryan, Matt Kenseth made his return to the track at the ripe old age of 48. We all know what happened with Kyle Larson. So Kenseth was the replacement. Tell me about his day and what you saw from him.
3: It was really impressive. And and as impressive as Newman's return was, I think I was just as impressed, if not more so, with Matt Kenseth, who ended up with a top ten result. First time in a major lead car, I think we can call it that. He's done some late model racing in Wisconsin, including the Slinger Nationals, which he won. And that's a big deal in the late model racing world. But nevertheless, to to be out of a cup seat for this long, be with a team for the first time, no testing, no practice, nothing. Just jump right back into it after over a year uh, and and run the way he did. That was really remarkable. He said after the race that the car was faster than he was. So uh, clearly the Chip Ganassi team had something figured out. His teammate, Kurt Busch, had a really good run, finished in the top three. Uh, So I think having Kurt to lean on probably helped a little bit. And those two were teammates back at Roush really early in their careers. So it's kind of funny to see their careers. Come full circle, but Matt Kenseth for sure was one of the stories of the weekend, and uh, I, I was waiting to see what, what this would look like for him and, and came away very impressed. What do you do when
0: you're in retirement and you try to come out of it make a comeback for racing? For those of our listeners who don't know, how do you stay in, in, in shape enough to uh, participate at that kind of
3: level? Sure. I mean, a lot that that goes into it for all of these guys is a lot of cardio training. And and there's some exceptions. Ryan Newman probably is the most obvious one of active drivers, where you look at him and he's not the most fit individual. But by and large, to be successful at this level anymore, you, you really need to be in shape. The races are long it's incredibly hot in the car. It takes a lot out of you. And a place like Darlington in particular, it's a really difficult track with uh, tire degradation. And the handling really goes off as the race goes along. So um, to, to that that takes a lot out of the driver as well. Uh, you have to drive it pretty hard around a place like that. So for, for Matt, I'm sure it was a lot of cycling and a lot of running, things like that. And, and he has been active, like I said, racing late models, and that keeps him – Sharp on the racing side of things I suspect maybe he's done some simulator work as well just to get the reflexes sharpened a little bit but there's really no substitute for the real thing and that's what makes his performance all the more impressive and it's worth noting he's won a ton of races he's a former cup champion his pedigree is quite strong but uh, even still I was surprised with just how good he looked
0: well Ryan Kevin Harvick now the only driver that has finished the top 10 in every race thus far this year is he the favorite going forward, or what do we expect here down the stretch?
3: It's hard to say, mostly because of the postseason format that NASCAR uses. If you had asked me this in, you know, 20 years ago, and using that point system, which was truly a season-long championship, I would have said yes, he is the favorite. But the way that uh, that the postseason works, everything gets reset. It kind of comes down to if you have some good luck or bad luck down the stretch. And, and it's it's hard to say. You really can't take a ton from what we've seen so far and apply it to the end. But that said, you're right to see what he's done. Five top tens, three top fives, and five starts. Got that win there at Darlington. Joey Logano another one to keep an eye on. He has a couple of wins already this season um, and had a decent result at Darlington. Ran higher than he ended up finishing. Uh, but I think he and that Penske team are one to keep an eye on, too. And to be honest with you, I've been really impressed with the resurgence of the Hendrick Motorsports team, which has been lost in the woods a little bit the last couple of years. But before his crash, Jimmy was running really well. Chase Elliott recovered from a pet lane penalty to finish fourth. That was pretty impressive. And uh, just and, and Alex Bowman finished second. So... You know, there's definitely some pace with that team, and and it wouldn't be a huge surprise to me, assuming they can keep that going, if uh, if a champion couldn't come out of that stable.
0: Ryan Marine, the former sports director at ESPN-UP and host of the Sports Pen, and he's our in-house racing expert. It's always a pleasure to be able to talk with him and uh, get his thoughts on what's going on in the wide world of motorsports. Ryan, man, always good talking to you, and I appreciate you being on, man. Stay safe and be well, and we'll chat again soon. Sounds like a plan. Thanks as always. Let's take a time out more in a moment
4: on ESPN. Hello, this is Kelly George, President and CEO of M-Bank. We understand that there is a lot of uncertainty right now, but you can rest assured knowing your money is safe and secure with M-Bank. We remain in sound financial condition with strong levels of capital and liquidity to serve your financial needs, and our dedicated and experienced staff is here to help you through this challenging time. We have created a COVID-19 loan relief program to help alleviate some of the financial pressures you may face as a result of illness or workplace changes. Additionally, M-Bank is serving as a financial resource to small businesses in our communities as we will be a primary processor for the various new SBA loan programs as a preferred lender partner of the SBA. As we collectively navigate these uncertain times and work together through social distancing measures to help mitigate the spread of the coronavirus, the safety and well-being of our employees, customers, and the communities we serve remains our top priority. We also remain focused on continuing to provide our essential services to you and thank you for your patience and flexibility. Please stay healthy, please stay safe, and good wishes to you all.
1: Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Now back to the sports pad. Here's Tanner Hoops.
0: Get a free mobile app from the Apple i Store or Google Play. Tanner Hoop's with you, and it already has been a news-packed afternoon. I've got a little bit more I want to fit in here in our final minutes with each other. And again, uh, we appreciate our guests, Matt Mackerzak and Ryan Marine were kind enough to lend us their time. I do want to talk about the NFL and their strength of schedule because they rated which division is going to have the toughest path to get multiple teams into the postseason for the coming year. I do want to get to that, and we will get to that. There are a couple of other avenues I want to take first. And the first one starts political, but it relates to sports, so bear with me on this. Senator Richard Burr. Who I believe was the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee until this weekend, he finally stepped down for his role as part of one of uh, four senators to use inside information when the COVID 19 pandemic was starting to take shape in America. They used their inside knowledge to work around their stock portfolio so that they wouldn't be as heavily affected financially by this. So, him, along with three other senators, were part of this. Now, it's funny because this is the same senator who if we flash back to what was it, September of last year when think about this, the NCAA decided to allow athletes to be compensated for their names, images, and likenesses. The NCAA said that athletes will not getting paid for their sport if somebody is willing to I don't know, put them in a video game or allow their name to be, you know, used in that video game, posters be made of them for retail that the athlete is allowed to negotiate compensation for that. The NCA decided to pass that. Richard Burr, who used his inside information to plan his stock portfolio back in February before it really got bad here to plan his stock portfolio so that COVID-19 would not affect him financially as bad as the common man. Well, when the NCAA first said athletes can profit off their likeness, Richard Burr tweeted this, quote, if college athletes are going to make money off their likenesses while in school, their scholarships should be treated like income. I'll be proposing legislation that subjects scholarships given to athletes who choose to, quote, cash in to income taxes. Oops, that's kind of a freezing cold take. Now that you look back on it, so you know what I, I never wish bad things on people, but that's uh, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? I tell you what, the other route, the other avenue I want to take here before we talk about the NFL and strength of schedule, is in relation to believe it or not, Scottish soccer. The Scottish Professional Soccer League has announced that they are not going to try and restart their season. They were paused midway through their year, and they have decided they're not going to try and restart. They are going to pack it in, and they're going to start preparing for the coming season. They just decided to name Celtic, who was leading in the standings at the time, this year's champion. There's a lot of people who say, we should do that here with the NHL and the NBA. Don't even try to restart this year. It's not worth it. We just need to put all our resources into the coming year. Let's start on time. Let's pack it in for this year with hockey and basketball. There are even some people who say, you know what? If college football, uh, and college football especially, if they can't have fans in the stands, we shouldn't even have a season because it's all about the atmosphere. And to me, those are just the dumbest takes that anyone could have. They really are. And I'm not afraid to to say that because – You think about it, and yes, I get it. Safety is the priority. And if it gets to the point where the health of the athlete is going to be affected, that's the reason that we can't restart the season or we can't have a college football seat or whatever sport it is. If it is because the health of the athlete, that trumps all. And And that's not stupid. In that case, that is not stupid. I'm talking about what is stupid, the people who say, If we can't have fans in the stands, then we shouldn't have a season at all. That it's all about the atmosphere. That is what's stupid. And it is stupid. Because as somebody who's in sports media, we make our living off having these kind of events. And again, I'm not saying I want my colleagues, you know, because so many good people I know have been furloughed, laid off, they can't work, they're looking for work. Some guys who are just getting out of school looking for a job in sports casting, but nobody's hiring. I get it. If it truly is about the safety and well being of the athlete, then fine. We don't need to have a season. We don't need to restart a season. But if you can do it safely, if you can provide a safe environment, and the only reason someone doesn't want to have a season is because the atmosphere won't be the same, because there aren't fans in the stands, no. No, because so many more of my colleagues, my friends, people in this line of work, are going to be furloughed, laid off, and filing for unemployment. And to me, that trumps how you feel about atmosphere, how you feel about the stadium and the feel of the game, the fan experience. I don't care about the fan experience if we can have games played safely for the athletes and it keeps people in my line of work employed. That's what I care about. And that's why I cannot stand these takes of even if we can provide a safe environment for the athletes, we shouldn't have a season because I feel like the fan experience matters more than keeping thousands of people in sports media, maybe millions, employed. That's why I'm hoping that we can restart the hockey and basketball seasons and we can do so safely. Again, I. I I speak, I'm sure for a lot of people that safety trumps all and I want all my friends to be safe, financially secure throughout all this but I want people to be healthy overall and I'm not saying that we would send athletes out there in unsafe conditions to save to save sports writers and sportscasters, people in sports media I'm, I'm not saying that we would do that to save their jobs by putting athletes at risk but if we can provide a safe environment, I want sports. I want it to happen. I want it to happen. I, I don't care if it's in front of an empty stadium or not. I care more about if we can have a safe environment for the athletes. I care more about keeping studios and offices full rather than empty. And that's my rant for today. That's that's straight talk here in ESPN-UP. Let's get into the NFL strength of schedule because the NFL came out with this yesterday they ranked each team's projected strength of schedule and who's going to have the toughest road and who's going to have the easiest road for the upcoming NFL season as we know the schedules have been released so i took it a step further and i looked at which division collectively has the toughest strength of schedule and who has the easiest we can start to pick out a little bit which division has the best shot at putting multiple teams Into the postseason. Well, let me start with the top of the list, which is the toughest strength of schedule. According to the NFL itself, the team with the toughest schedule for the coming season, the New England Patriots, followed by the Jets, the Dolphins, the 49ers, and the Falcons. Those teams have the five toughest regular season schedules this year, according to the NFL. You heard the first three teams all from the AFC East and by the way just outside the top five the Buffalo Bills are number six so it is pretty definitive and honestly, I went through this list and uh, it's pretty decisive that the AFC East collectively has the toughest strength of to schedule let's go down to the bottom the teams with the five easiest regular season schedules you have the Washington Redskins at number 28 Number 29, the Cleveland Browns. Number 30, the Dallas Cowboys. Number 31, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the team with the easiest schedule, according to the NFL, for this this season, the Baltimore Ravens. So I went through here, and I I assigned a number and added them all up. So let's say you have uh, the Patriots are in the number one spot for toughest strength of schedule, the Dolphins are at number three, the Bills are at number six, add all those numbers up, I forgot the Jets are at number two, add all those numbers up and they have a score of 12. I went through and I did that you want the lowest score for the uh, toughest strength of schedule, highest number that you get is the easiest strength to schedule and I went through it and each division I went through division by division who's got the toughest strength of schedule among each division and from toughest to easiest it looks like this AFC East, NFC West, NFC North, NFC South, AFC South, AFC West, NFC East, and AFC North. Now, if we want to use this model to predict, and I get it, there are some flaws with it, I'm going to address those, but if we do want to address the possible playoff picture with this model, let's do so. Let's say that the two teams, are the two divisions with the easiest strength of schedules, they might have the best shot at putting multiple teams into the postseason. Again, there's flaws to that, and I'm going to address them, but let's just explore that here for a moment, because the AFC North, according to NFL, will have the easiest collective strength of schedule. We all think the Ravens are probably going to repeat there. Are they going to win 14 games again? I don't know. I don't know, because they're going to be a different team than they were last year. They're, uh, they don't have the same offensive line. They're a little more raw. They're, they're younger. They're uh, they're not as experienced as they were in the offensive line last year. Plus, they lose Hayden Hurst, part of that 3 tight end package. Instead, they're investing in speedsters, guys in the backfield, instead of that ground-and-pound, put up a, a stone wall for Lamar Jackson. They're going to be a different team this year. So, will they win the division? I still think so. But, Other teams in the AFC North, I think, are going to be better. I think Pittsburgh, with a full season of Ben Roethlisberger and Juju Smith-Schuster, will be a team that will contend for the postseason. They were right on the doorstep last year, largely without those two. I think Cleveland's got the talent there. They've got the talent to be able to make the postseason. So, yeah, there's absolutely a possibility that that division, with the weakest strength of schedule collectively, could produce multiple playoff teams. How about the NFC East, where you have, Philadelphia, who made the playoffs last year, albeit at 9-7, and seven, they got significantly better at their weakest areas. They got better at the wide receiver group, and they got better in the defensive backfield. You have Dallas that had a great draft, and now they're bringing in a Super Bowl champion head coach to already what was maybe the best roster in the NFL last year, and Dallas should be a lot better this year. That division, collectively, with the easiest strength of schedule in the NFC, Maybe they could beat up on some teams outside the division, and both of them should be better, and they were both average to above-average teams last year, so there's a possibility that division could get in two teams because that division is going to be better this year. Philly's going to be better. Dallas is going to be better. The Giants should be better, albeit they're not going to contend for the postseason. But here's why I say there are flaws to this model because there's a reason that some of these divisions are at the top in terms of strength of schedule. It's because they have so many talented teams. They're just going to beat up on each other. They've got to play each other twice a year that the most talent, obviously, is going to go to the top. The cream is going to rise to the top. And in the AFC East, you have Jared Stidham taking over for Tom Brady in New England. I think they're going to be just fine. I think they're going to win at least 11 games and go to the playoffs. I, I just don't believe Belichick is capable of any less. And then you've got Buffalo who Jim Kelly says if we don't win the East this year with Tom Brady gone, something is amiss. And you know that's fallen right on the shoulders of Josh Allen, at quarterback. New England and Buffalo certainly are two teams capable of going back to the postseason. They were both there last year. And then the division with the second toughest collective strength to schedule, the NFC West. That division has produced the last two NFC champions, a third team who's been to the playoffs the last two years, and then another team who's got a dynamic quarterback, an offensive genius at the head coaching spot, and a top two wide receiver on their roster this year, DeAndre Hopkins. I personally think Hopkins is the second best wideout in the NFL behind only Michael Thomas. So those teams' strength, the schedule is so high because they have to play each other twice a year. They're going to be beaten up on each other. They don't have those cupcakes that are factored in that other teams might. So certainly that's a division that it almost seems impossible won't send at least two teams to the playoffs, if not three. That's kind of where we're having this debate. And then you get down to the middle. I know I'm running short on time. We get down to the middle, the nitty-gritty, and who knows? Who knows what those divisions are going to end up looking like? This is all speculation as we get together here in mid-May. I, d- I would love to keep going in on that because I think there are a few more key points you can make, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Join me tomorrow for Eastern, 3 Central. We're going to have another fun show with you. Until then, have a great rest of your Monday. Stay safe, be well. I'm Tanner Hoops for ESPN, UP, WZAM, Ishba, Mink-Marke.